Welcome to Upstream Downstream, a lively civil discussion devoted to the political, policy, and cultural topics that often divide us. Upstream Downstream is presented by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communication at Shepherd University in cooperation with WSHC-FM and the Listen, Learn, Engage initiative. And now for this week's discussion. This is Upstream Downstream. I'm Bianca Eisen. From the 1776 Commission to the 1619 Project, there have been debates around how we teach history in the U.S. since the 80s. Joining me today for the first half of the show to discuss how we teach history in the United States is Jonathan Butcher. He is the Will Skillman Fellow of Education at the Heritage Foundation and author of the book, Splintered Critical Race Theory and the Progressive War on Truth. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Great to be with you. So, Jonathan, I'd like to start with how has the pandemic affected how involved parents are in their children's education? They've been very involved over the past two years because they, out of necessity, we've seen assigned schools around the country close not only in the spring of 2020 when the pandemic first set in, but many of them remain closed through the 2020-2021 school year. I think it's fair to say that, in general, we had kind of an on-again, off-again situation for students really across the country. There are districts like Chicago and Philadelphia where teacher unions uh, told their members not to return in person and caused kind of a showdown with district officials. I think more what was a more common event or a more common situation was that with assigned schools, there would be breakouts or there would be um, times when you would have a significant number of positive cases and they would have to send an entire class home or perhaps even close the school for a period of time. And, and these interruptions were interruptions not just in student learning, which of course is a priority, but also parents who are you know, trying to get to work and run a household. Uh, they had to be uh, not just aware of what was going on, but needed to be advocating for the best learning option for their child in the meantime. As I've mentioned, there seems to be this ongoing debate about what should be taught in schools, but who gets to decide which parts of history we teach. Parents have been wanting to have more of a say, but where do we draw the line between the wants of the parent and then the expertise of those who are making the curriculum? Well, I think parents know their children best and know uh, what their students, um, uh, what, what is the best learning environment for their children. Um, I think the, the parents and te- te- teachers and parents have a bit of a, a social contract going on here where parents want their children to be prepared for the future and to learn the material that they're presented with in school so that they can succeed in school and in life. And when they see that their values are not being represented, parents should have the ability to remove their child and find another place for them to attend, either attend a school or uh, have some sort of customized, you know, learning option like we're seeing in some, in more, uh, more states today. So, you know, I don't think this is a, you know, who gets the final say, you know, parents or teachers in a public school classroom. I think it has more to do with making sure that public schools are accurately representing what should be a place of healthy civic and civil discourse about American history. And I do think that parents should be the ones who, if they see that what their child is being taught, uh, either they disagree with it or it doesn't comport with how they understand American history, that they should be able to choose another place for their child to attend. 
That was one of the things that you had mentioned during the panel for the American Conversation series was that schools should be making material more transparent, allowing parents to see what they're going to teach before it comes home as an assignment. So how can schools be making their material more transparent so, say, before school starts, they can get that out of the way rather than waiting until partway through the school year and a parent sees an assignment and they're not okay with what their child is doing? Sure, and we don't have to reinvent anything here. There are charter schools and private schools who, as a matter of habit or a matter of of policy, place their curriculum materials online or lists of the books that students are being assigned online as well as the topics that are going to be covered. And they do so because parents choose these schools, right? The charter schools are public schools of choice. Private schools, of course, are schools that parents choose based on either their values, uh, religious or otherwise, that they want their, uh, you know, the kind of environment they want their child to be exposed to. So I think it is very reasonable to say as taxpayers, as we are the ones who are, um, who are paying for assigned public schools, that they be asked to put their um, uh, syllabi online as well as the list of required reading materials as well as lesson plans uh, online. And I think, you know, it, um, for some, some educators may argue, well, this is such an imposition on, on what we do and, you know, we really don't, we're already stretched thin, which, which is, you know, it's fair, right? I mean, at least for, the, you know, the schools that have been open and in person for, uh, for students during the pandemic. But nevertheless, this is a responsibility, right? This is what I was re- referring to earlier when I talked about that social contract between parents and teachers. I mean, this is a part of what parents should expect. I mean, they should expect that they uh, should be told and, and be able to find out what their children are being taught. And frankly, that is a part of a teacher's responsibility is to uh, be working with parents. Uh, I would hope, I would hope by the same token, if a child was struggling in a class that the teacher would let the parent know before even the child brought bad grades home or before the child, you know, was going to fail a course, right? I mean, this is, this is a part of what, uh, the way that a public school represents this intersection between policy and culture in American life. On the subject of failing classes, regardless of what's being taught in the classrooms, it doesn't appear to be sticking well with students, especially during this pandemic. Since we've moved to Zoom, students' grades have suffered Other students are struggling as we're transitioning into going back into the classroom. It almost makes the debate about what we teach seem a moot point if there's a struggle for students to retain it. So how can we better engage students in the classroom or Zoom to help make the material stick? Well, I think for one, when virtual learning is successful, it is often, it is is because parents choose that for their children. I mean, even before the pandemic, parents were choosing virtual schools on purpose, right? I think when students are assigned to virtual schools or virtual schooling when it's not the best fit for them, that's what creates the situation where you have a system that's not providing a set of options that meets, you know, the needs of students. Uh, I think that we should be paying attention to the facts of American history as well as uh, having conversations about, in at age-appropriate levels, what those facts mean for us today. So, you know, let's take a discussion about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln had certain designs on what would happen to uh, African Americans who uh, were going to be freed from slavery and what would happen after that, right? I mean, there was some, there's evidence to, uh, to, to say that he 
was thinking of, of sending them back to the continent of Africa, right? There's also evidence that Lincoln um, had more, uh, sub, I would say, subdued, I guess, um, uh, political designs on how he wanted to solve the issue of slavery in the United States. But then that all changed, right? It changed with the emancipation. It changed with, frankly, him putting both his political life on the line as well as what turned out to be his actual life on the line. That that discussion is good to be had at the high school level. At the elementary school level, I would argue that you need to give students an understanding of why Abraham Lincoln was uh, so significant, what he means to the American experiment, and what he, you know, why we remember him today. We remember him today for what was achieved. And when you talk about the complications of someone's reputation, you know, that's a conversation that has to be had later. In the end, and I'll kind of finish with this concluding thought here on this point, in the end, even with the recognition that humans are not perfect and our imperfection, uh, we must be willing to still hold on to those examples of heroism and aspiration that people such as Abraham Lincoln provide for us in history. As I've mentioned, the way that we teach history has been a divisive issue since the 80s, and it seems to be getting progressively more heated. Would there be a benefit to putting more emphasis on learning civics and possibly even debate as opposed to history? I mean, I think that the uh, the teaching of civics has been a bipartisan issue for many years now. I think both those on the right and the left recognize that it's not covered enough or to the to the degree of, you know, to a thorough degree uh, that uh, that observers and parents and educators would like it to be. So I think right, left, center, I, I think that there's, there is wide, uh, wide agreement that we need more teaching of civics. I would argue that you do need a foundation on which to, to base, you know, a discussion of civics or the teaching of uh, the, uh, the practice of being engaged in, in public life, uh, and history provides that. I would also not confuse civics with teaching activism. And I'm afraid that that's what critical race theory does. You know, uh, Delgado and Stefancic, who are two of the original critical race theorists, say in their writings that there is an activist dimension to critical race theory. Uh, Derek Bell, the godfather of critical race theory, wrote that he hoped that academic resistance to American America's uh, traditions would lead to wide-scale resistance. So... You know, we, we don't, I don't want to confuse what is a, frankly, a radical approach to thinking about American life through the lens of Marxism and race. I don't want to confuse that with a quality teaching of history and civics in the U.S. Well, when we were talking about the facts of American history, sometimes the way that history is presented is different. I forget which state it is off the top of my head that instead of referring to African Americans who were here as enslaved people... They were just called workers. And especially now, people in general are much more aware of what's going on in the world, what happened in history than 100 years ago, 50 years ago, even 20 years ago. So to what extent should our contemporary moral values affect how we study history? Well, I think it it should affect them uh, very much, but that doesn't mean that we should cancel them or erase history. Uh, and I also don't think it should result in just the condemnation of history. I think you're exactly right. I think today, 
And this is one of the things I talked about last night was that America has this self-corrupting mechanism, both on our political institutions as well as our culture, that allows us to look back and say, yes, slavery in the Jim Crow era violated our uh, founding ideals. They violated our founding documents. It is not what America is based on. And when Gunnar Myrdal wrote An American Dilemma in the 1940s, that's what he recognized as well. And he said, listen, you know, Americans need to come to grips with the fact that these institutions were a violation of what America is all about. And after the Civil Rights Movement and after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we had our government officially saying, right, racism and discrimination have no place in our life. And so that's, you know, we're, they set down the law to say that the government would, ha- would have no part of that in the future. And so it takes time, right, to, to move culture, sadly, on this issue, right? It should have happened much faster, of course, but it does take time. But once it did, and I believe it has, that now we do look back on those issues in the past and say, yes, that was wrong. Or we look at things that happen in the media today uh, when um, a discriminatory act or an act of racism occurs and we condemn it. That's progress, right? I believe that that's progress as a culture for us to not deny when racism or discrimination takes place. We condemn it and we seek justice for those who have been affected. I don't think it does us any credit to, instead of acknowledging it and seeking justice, to say, well, we need to take their statue down or we need to erase the name of this building or we need to burn this book or we need to ban this book for that matter. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today and giving your perspective on this issue. Thank you. You're listening to Upstream Downstream, sponsored by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communications and the Listen, Learn, Engage initiative at Shepherd University. Our next guest to discuss how we teach history in the United States is Chris Doyle. Chris teaches history at the Avon Old School Farm in Avon, Connecticut. Before that, he served as director of global studies at Watkinson School in Hartford and as an adjunct history professor at Trinity College. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that I found interesting that you mentioned during the conversation, the American Conversation series panel was that you would prefer to teach using monographs as opposed to using a traditional textbook. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about why using a monograph would be more beneficial in the classroom. Well, it depends on the course, but um, if we were to take a U.S. history class, um, I think a textbook often takes a lot of the human drama out of the story. Um, and also, it has to cover so much breadth that it's, it's difficult for students to get a sense of a narrative, a storyline. You know, the original historians were oral storytellers. And I think people naturally relate to stories. So I might want to teach um, a U.S. history class maybe by assigning a book about you know, one of the founding fathers' roles in the American Revolution. Or later in the course, I'd like to have them read Frederick Douglass's uh, autobiography. Uh, and then maybe later in the course, uh, you know, uh, a, a memoir of Vietnam or something like that. But um, I just find that, that monographs are, and stories are so much more compelling than just reading chapter by chapter in a textbook that that approach works better for me. 
wouldn't using a monograph, however, narrow the scope of what we're teaching? Because that was something that was brought up is there's that concern where what we're teaching on the textbook, it's a lot, but a lot of it is very superficial information. And we only deep dive deep further into certain topics. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I, I would fill larger storyline, perhaps with a lecture, a series of lectures, uh, some student research, uh, some student presentations, a, a student term paper. Um, even, even if you just followed a textbook chapter by chapter, uh, trying to get a narrative storyline with big themes in American history or any history can be difficult. So uh, I've been doing this for a while, and um, most students I've had seem to get more and a sense of continuity and a sense of large theme from a non-textbook approach. And that's that's not a universal wrap against textbooks. Um, I have a freshman world fit class right now, and I'm, I'm using a textbook. And, um, you know, I use it selectively, but... Um, uh, you know, our department decided that we were going to use the textbook. We vetted a few. This one's pretty good. Uh, I don't want to get textbook authors mad at me. I wouldn't unequivocally <laughs> say never use a textbook. <laughs> <laughs> so there was some discussion during the panel about how far we delve into which parts of history. Would it be more beneficial if we just taught everything at surface level, but then let the students <laughs> decide what they want to delve further into, as you said, through term papers, through the research, through their presentations. Well, I mean, personally to me, that sounds like a circle of hell as a <laughs> I, I get your point, and it, it sounds like it sounds like the way you're phrasing it, it might be empowering to students to imagine that they get to pick different levels of depth. Uh, but, you know, I mean, like, take take an ordinary high school history department. Um, somebody probably has uh, a background in uh, European history. Somebody else has a background in American women's history. Uh, a third person maybe has an economics background. It, it would be virtually impossible, I think, for any two teachers to teach the same subject exactly the same way. We're not robots. All our experience is different. I came of age and was educated in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, you know, people who are who are undergrads now are are probably getting a different education themselves than I had. Um, you know, I I've done a lot of archival research. Um, I, I wrote a few academic articles. I wrote a doctoral dissertation, and I I think those are strengths for me. And to, to try to pretend I didn't have all that stuff and I was just a robot going through the superficial motions like everybody else, that would that would kill my career. I would hate it. I, I don't think I could do it. I don't think anybody could do it. Well, I bring this up because especially since we've moved to Zoom, students' grades have been suffering. As we're transitioning back into the classroom, some students are struggling to retransition back now that schools are reopening. As I mentioned with Jonathan, it seems almost a moot point that if students are struggling to retain this information anyway... From a teacher's perspective, how could we better be engaging students to help them remember this information that they're learning? Zoom is hard. Zoom is hard. Uh, I understand that. I've taught on Zoom, and uh, it's difficult, and attention tends to wander. Um, I found the discussion 
uh, Monday, which I really enjoyed. Fun, but I think it would have been even better if we'd all been in in the same room together. Um, I think for me, teaching history, it, it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago. People like stories. People warm up to stories. Um, I have in the classroom a kind of theatrical sense, and I think that helps. Um, I also think people enjoy having a conversation. So when I structure a class discussion, uh, I tend to ask really open-ended questions that don't all lead to the same conclusion, and I let the students debate and discuss. We sometimes have formal debates. We have role-playing events. Um, I role-played last year in a class uh, a uh, war crimes trial for Dick Cheney uh, uh, based on use of torture in the war on terror. And, you know, it was fascinating. Kids loved it. They really dug into it. Uh, one of the classes acquitted Cheney. The other class convicted him. And uh, it was great. They learned more about about the American methodology in the war on terror and about um, uh, the rules of ethical engagement in war in that, in that one role play than I could have taught them in a month. I'd like you to talk more about how you use debate in your classrooms, because one of the questions that I have is, should schools be putting more of an emphasis on learning civics or even debate to talk about these kinds of divisive issues as opposed to studying history? Yeah, you know, just as uh, just before you called, I was listening to NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and she was interviewing a journalist who has dug down deep into the effects these divisive concept laws have been having on instruction. And they're having a strong, chilling effect. Um, I think debates are terrific, but even the way a public school teacher in some states might structure a debate today could get that teacher in trouble and could potentially get that teacher um, fired. You know, I, I mentioned... Um, on the um, on the conversation in the conversation on Monday night, I mentioned this case in Stillwater, Texas, where the teachers in that school district were were told that they had to teach opposing points of view on the Holocaust. Um, I think that that's delusional. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what what are you supposed to do? Teach like Holocaust denial, or teach that it wasn't that bad? If, if you have a history department that can't take a firm moral stand on the Holocaust, you have, a, you have a pretty useless history department. When it comes to where schools are standing on what we're teaching, where do you believe that the line should be between what parents want their children to learn and what the experts who are making the curriculum are putting into programs? Well, first of all, um, I should say that you know, I teach in a pub, in a private school at the moment. Um, our curricula, our history curricula, are determined by our department as a whole with some oversight by our curricular administrator. Uh, in public schools, there, there are no nationally adhered to standards or rules for history education. There are national standards. But those are advisory standards. They are not mandated. The state of Connecticut, where I live, has history standards 
but they don't have standardized tests in Connecticut that teach to those standards. So each school district has quite a bit of latitude to devise its own standards. And in Connecticut, I believe we have like 160 school districts right now, public school districts. So I bet, um, you know, I know Jonathan is a big advocate. Jonathan Butcher is a big advocate of school choice. Uh, I think ultimately the people who make those curricula are are local history teachers with administrative oversight and maybe some scrutiny from their local board of ed. So I don't think that there's some big faceless bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. that's trying to impose critical race theory or some other leftist agenda on American schools. Here in New England, you know, there are, there are, it's literally let a few hundred schools of thought bloom on this. Um, there are state standards, but they're not tested. And most local school districts use those as a basis for creating their own instructional uh, curricula and their own lesson plans and their own units. On the topic of standardized testing, should what we teach in schools be something that's standardized at a federal level? Because I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I am not an education background, but it's decided for the most part by the states, with the exception of, say, AP courses, which is something that you have to meet on a national level. Right, right. Um, I teach AP uh, U.S. government and politics right now. Uh, I will tell you this, that um, in many private and public schools, advanced placement classes are being eliminated. And they're being eliminated in part because, especially at, at some of the highest achieving schools, the belief is that you can create a richer, more provocative, deeper curriculum yourself than you than you would get by teaching to an AP test. Um, you know, in in my AP government class, uh, the students will be taking uh, a multiple choice test consisting of eighty questions, and they'll they'll have sixty minutes to answer those eighty questions. Right, so they they get less than a minute for a multiple choice question, and then they have they have four essays to write. On average, they get like 20 minutes for each of the four essays. Um, this is not a lot of depth, <laughs> you know. Um, so I, I'm kind of of, of two minds about AP classes. I, I think there is a very good argument that some AP courses in history and social studies and political science uh, encourage the kind of superficiality that I've already gone on record as being against. Uh, you know, perhaps in low-achieving districts, uh, a student taking an AP class and getting a four or a five in that class, that would that would count as a real mark of achievement for that student in some school system. And also, um, you know, that can be valuable college credit for students who, uh, you know, who are trying to graduate college early and save substantial money. Uh, I've taught students in public schools who graduated with you know, 30 college credits uh, right out of high school. You know, that, that would be a year less of college if you could transfer all those credits into college. And, and I see there's a real strong argument for that, for sure. So that's why I have kind of conflicted feelings about AP classes. 
Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this episode. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Both Chris Doyle and our first guest, Jonathan Butcher, were guest panelists at our American Conversation series, Teaching American History, available on both our Facebook page and YouTube channel. I'd also like to thank our producer, Sarah Burke, and our acting director, Greg Fields. Thank you all so much for listening, and until next time, I'm Bianca Eisen. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Upstream Downstream, presented by the Stubblefield Institute for Civil Political Communications at Shepherd University. To learn more about the Stubblefield Institute, other programs such as the Listen, Learn, Engage initiative, or the American Conversation series, or to become a friend of the Institute, please go online to stubblefieldinstitute.org.